Well, good evening, Community Church. I'm so pleased to be with you tonight. Uh, and I want to start off this Good Friday evening with a bit of confession to you all. You see, uh, Good Friday is a day that has been particularly difficult for me to know how to worship well. You know, it feels like there's this strange juxtaposition between us gathering to worship and to celebrate something, and then the remembering the reason why we're gathering to celebrate. You know, a day that is marked by such great suffering. Uh, And it's always just been a struggle for me to know how to calibrate myself to approach worship on Good Friday. You know, I think it has something to do with this little bit of expectation that's in my head of when I come to worship, it should feel a certain way. It should feel maybe, maybe uplifting and it should feel light. And then there's this sneaky thing that happens in my mind when I put that in the context of Good Friday that says, no, 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 that's, that's too heavy. That doesn't feel right. And I know in my spirit that there's not one way that gathering for worship should feel, but I just can't get over that sense of expectation I have when I come to gather with the family of God. And that idea of maybe having our expectations unsettled a little bit is where I want us to land tonight. You know, that sense of shaking or maybe upsetting and rocking our expectations is what we've looked at over the last 10 weeks as we've been preaching this series that we've called Against the Grain. Uh, And we've explored how by his teachings and his actions and even just the company that he kept, Jesus was a master at unsettling people and what they believed to be right and true and correct. But before we get too much further, I want to say good evening and welcome to our Mount Pleasant campus family and for those joining us online. uh, We're glad to have you with us for Good Friday. As we keep going, I want us to take a look back of where we've been and what Jesus has been doing uh, as we've preached this series. See, since the moment that he was baptized in the Jordan River, uh, Jesus has been publicly ministering and teaching. He's been gathering disciples, performing signs and wonders. He's been feeding crowds and healing the sick uh, and helping blind people see. And he's, he's even gone so far as to bring some people back from the dead. And the way that he's been teaching has been to proclaim that there is this kingdom of God that is different from the kingdom of this earth, and it's very near to us. And as he brought that teaching, not to the right and religious and proper people that a good rabbi would go to teach, uh, he would go to the common people. He would go to the poor. He would go to the, the downtrodden and the broken, the people that were outcasts, and he would bring this message of God's kingdom to them for hope and for deliverance. And he was starting to gather a following of people that were both devoted to his teaching, but also were just curious about what in the heck is this guy Jesus from Nazareth doing? And all along the way, he would do things and say things that challenged and annoyed and just downright ticked off the religious people. It actually happened so much that two groups of people, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, would try and catch him being blasphemous with his words, and so they would come and question him. And Pastor Josh looked at this a few weeks ago where it got to the point where he answered them so well and so astutely that they just gave up asking him any more questions because they didn't want to be embarrassed by the way Jesus answered them. 
And it went from a Q&A session where they're trying to catch him in his words, and it evolved into a plot against his life. And that plot grew as Jesus' fame grew. And then just this past Sunday, Pastor Wally looked at how that plot turned into a betrayal and into an arrest and into a trial. And it was a trial that forced people all around Jesus to make a choice and answer the question, what are we going to do with this Jesus? And the reality is, no matter where you look in the Bible, that there are all sorts of people who have expectations about what Jesus is and who he is and what he's going to do for them and what he's going to do in the world that he operates in. And I want to spend tonight looking at three of the most prevalent sets of expectations that we see in Scripture. And the first one is this. Uh, There are a whole bunch of people that are around Jesus who think that he is going to be a conquering Messiah. And as he grows, draws greater and greater followings of people, and the way that he taught and lived and the miracles that he performed, there's this growing rumble and a rumor that there's a Messiah who's come. And it's not just among the well-educated Jewish people, it's actually reaching the Roman officials and rulers, and that there's this person who might be the Messiah. And to understand what all that means, you have to understand that there's a huge ball of wax that comes along with the title of Messiah. You see, the Jewish people had been waiting for a Messiah because that title meant the chosen one. Any Matrix fans out there? (laughs) The chosen one. And they've been waiting for the chosen one since the time of King David. Hundreds and hundreds of years they've been waiting for this chosen Messiah. And King David was the greatest of all of the kings of Israel. He was a mighty warrior. He ruled an empire. He brought peace to the land of Israel. But he was also one who was near to God. And there's all these prophecies that tell the people of God that that the, the new Messiah, this coming chosen one, would be from the line of David. And so there's all of this expectation that this new Messiah would be like King David, that he would be a great ruler, that he would be strong and a warrior, and he would be someone that would be close to God. That he would be this fit king that would restore the greatness of the empire, just like King David had done. And there was even this sense from his closest followers uh, that only was revealed after the resurrection, spoiler alert, uh, that they thought that he might even be the conquering Messiah. They asked him in in Acts, Lord, will you restore the kingdom of Israel at this time, now that you've risen from the dead? And so even the closest people to him thought that he might be this conquering Messiah, this powerful ruler, But beyond just the kingly aspiration of Messiah, there's this assumption that the Messiah is going to free the people of God from their oppressors. You see, at the time in history when Jesus lived and died, Rome was the law of the land. And they ruled by force and by oppression and by taxation and authority. And the hope for Messiah was that he would come with a sword in his hand, riding on a horse, and he would kick the butts of those Romans. And the people of God would have their land again, and the Romans would be gone. They'd be free from the oppression. And then there's this spiritual significance of Messiah, that he would be the one that would save them and bring them back to God. Once again, they'd be close to their father. 
all of this is getting wrapped up in one title. And Jesus is more and more being associated with this idea of being the Messiah, the chosen one. And then there's this entirely different set of people. It's the crowds that follow Jesus and come to hear his teaching. Uh, And not everybody in the crowds, but you have to imagine that there's a whole bunch of people in these crowds that are looking at Jesus as a provider. Because several of the miracles that Jesus did was to provide food for all sorts of people. And if you were a common person living in this hard scrabble land with a Roman government over you who taxed every last cent that you had, someone who could provide you a free lunch would be a great person to follow around. Wouldn't that be the the teacher? Wouldn't that be the rabbi that you'd want to follow? We get together, we hear a great message, and then right when the message is over, there's lunch for everybody. No need to go to Sunday brunch out at the restaurants. Your rabbi could provide it for you. What a better teacher to have. And I'm sure that there are many in those crowds that followed Jesus because he was healing and because he was feeding. And they didn't really understand the fullness of this message that he's talking about, God's kingdom coming. Uh, His disciples even talk about with Jesus, and he says, they don't understand because I teach in parables, I teach in stories, and it's not revealed to everybody yet. Only those people who have ears to hear and are ready to see. And then we have probably the smallest group with their expectations of Jesus are his close friends, his followers, his disciples, his mother. They're the ones that see Jesus as their teacher, yes. He's also their friend and compatriot. They'd hoped he would do just what he said he would do, would bring God's kingdom and they weren't always sure what that kingdom coming looked like. Maybe it would be to gather a crowd of followers and, and march into Jerusalem and, and take over the temple and set the religious system right, but maybe not. Maybe it would be that, that they would just have someone who could teach them the ways of God. They would have their own little community of people who followed the true ways of Scripture. and They could follow this new teaching that Jesus brought with such authority and power and conviction And maybe even some of them had some of those messianic expectations around Jesus. But they trusted him. They wanted to learn from him. They wanted to be with him. And there was a growing sense with these followers and those closest to him that maybe he is just who he says he is. And he is the son of God. They start to declare it a few at a time over their time with him. But they certainly didn't like any of that talk that he started to do towards the end of their three years together when he said, I'm not always going to be with you. I'm going to have to go away. They didn't want to hear any of that from him. They wanted to stay with him, for him to lead them, to complete what he had started, and they loved Jesus. They didn't want to lose their friend. So we have all these people with all these differing expectations ramping up and converging on this day of Good Friday. And after the trial that we talked about on Sunday, Jesus is handed over to the Romans. And they march him through the streets, carrying the cross of his own demise. He falls under the weight of it. They conscript someone to help him carry it down the streets. They take him out of the city. And there he's ultimately crucified. Mark records it this way. Mark 15, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, 
which means the place of the skull. And there they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Before he ever arrives at this place, he's been beaten and insulted and spit upon and mocked. And now he's hung on a cross alongside criminals. And there he hangs and he's broken in body. He's battered while his accusers and those who oppress him and even those who love him have to look on. And it's not like crucifixion is a speedy and expeditious and merciful way to die. No, it's, it's horrible because Jesus stays there for hours hanging on the sun and, and struggling for breath. Just struggling with his flesh. It's pierced and it's broken, but also in his spirit as that impending sense of what's about to come, the weight of the sin of the world cascading down on top of him. And it's just in this moment where we see Jesus on the cross that I want to come back to our expectations, not just from the the crowd, but maybe our own expectations. Because what happens is when Jesus goes up onto that cross, all of those people's hopes and dreams of what Jesus would do with them and for them and through them are shattered in an instant. And they come to this place that I'd like to call tonight the expectation gap. And it's the place where the difference between our expectation and the reality come crashing into one another. And that's not something that's new and unique to this scene of the cross. It happens in our everyday lives. And there's, there's times when it's kind of humorous and funny. You know, you might have seen the, the online videos of, you know, the parents who have the 15 and 9-month or 10-month or 11-month-old child who is dying for a car. And they're like, we got you a new car. And they hand them a little box that you think is going to have keys in it. Hot Wheels. And that moment, expectation gap. Actually, overheard... Here at church, over lunch the other day, the story of one of our very own staff members who pranked their teen son with an empty iPhone box with a flip phone in it. (laughs) Not once, but twice. And it's funny, and it's kind of a laugh, uh, but it's real. And and there's there's something that happens even in like the Instagramification of, of our world right now. Yes, I did just make that word up. But you see all these life experiences that people post on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok, and it looks lovely and gorgeous and everything is perfect. But nobody's showing the hard. We're putting our best foot forward. And I think travel might be one of the places where it's the worst. You know, you get this bucket list trip in your head and you want to go to Italy and you want to go see the Trevi Fountain and you expect this. And then you show up after you've booked your tour and you get this instead. It happens. You think you're going to get one thing and reality kind of gives you a harsh dose of the truth. And so for all of these groups of people that we've already looked at, those who were looking for this second King David, instead they get 
a king who's mocked. He gets a fake crown put on his head. He gets torn robes that are insultingly purple. He gets a reed in his hand instead of a royal scepter. And even the pronouncement of the charges against him as the king of the Jews is a mockery. And so Jesus going on that cross signals a whole other season, maybe hundreds of years, or decades more of waiting for Messiah, for that king who would restore the empire of Israel and their kingdom back to them. And for every single person who followed Jesus looking for healing or a free lunch, Jesus going on that cross means they're right back where they started. They're broke, and they're poor, and they're hungry again. And those who truly loved him, as their teacher and friend, the ones who believed that he was the Son of God, they probably had the worst shock of all. Because even though he'd been trying to warn them, they didn't really understand, they didn't really want to hear it. But how could it be that God was dead? The Son of God had died. What about all that he was telling them that he was going to bring? Surely the one who they thought was going to make everything right couldn't be caught up in the greatest of wrongs and being killed on a cross. It's not just them, like we all have these experiences in our life, right? I have this distinct memory of being about 25 years old. I had finished college, got my master's degree, moved across the country and started a job. Uh, And then I remember quitting that job and being caught smack in the middle of that expectation gap. Because my thought was that I was gonna finish college and go to have a career that would be like my dad, who worked in the same industry for the same company for over 40 years. And that I would love my job and that it would have great opportunities for the future and that it would be in my field and I would feel so fulfilled. Uh, And instead, I found myself uh, hating that job. and quitting after two years. And instead of being fulfilled and feeling like there was hope for the future in my career, I was a sleep-deprived, semi-stay-at-home dad who worked part-time for a church and side-hustled engagement photos on nights and weekends. It was definitely not what I had expected. So what does God invite us to in that gap? between our hopes and dreams and in the reality of our lives. And so I want to ask us this question, because what's true for those who were around Jesus and what's true for me is also true for you. Uh, We come at life with expectations for not only ourselves, but we we bring our expectations for what Jesus is going to do for us and what God is going to do in our lives. But we sometimes will still experience disappointment and discouragement and pain uh, over our unmet expectations. And so what do we do when we find ourselves in the gap? So I want to leave you with hopefully three things that can help you when you find yourself in the gap between your expectations and your reality. And the first one is this. uh, Don't skip the in-between. Don't skip the in-between. And what I mean by that is the easy thing to do when you find yourself uncomfortable, when you find yourself hurting, or when you find yourself disappointed, is to look for the next point of light and the next thing of hope and race towards that. 
And it's possible that we want to get to the end of the bad so fast that we miss the point of the hurt or the pain or the discomfort. Because for whatever reason, pain is there as a reminder to us. A reminder for us to slow down, a reminder for us to stop. At least it should be. This past summer, I was playing a game of soccer with a bunch of guys and gals that ranged in uh, their early 20s to the over 40 set, uh, which I am a proud member of now. And I attempted to do something that I have done no less than a thousand times in my soccer playing career. Jump up into the air and put my head on the ball. Uh, that was all well and good until I came down. And my left foot came a little awkwardly underneath me and there was a crunch and a pop and some pain and I saw some stars for a second and I was laying on the ground. And then when I finally paid attention, there was five or six people looking over at me and saying, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. <clears throat> and so being the responsible adult, I stopped what I was doing, I went to the sidelines, I rested, and I consulted a doctor the next morning. Absolutely not. <clears throat> because I'm a stubborn, foolish person, uh, I got up, I jogged it off, I played for another 45 minutes, and then when I woke up the next morning, I fell when I tried to get out of bed because I couldn't bear weight on my left ankle. The pain should have been assigned to me. It should have been. This is a classic case of do what I say, not what I did. Uh, it should have been assigned to me to stop and ask, hey, why did that just really hurt? Why did you maybe slightly pass out for a second there? But I'm not a smart person sometimes. <clears throat> but the thing that we should do when we're experiencing pain or discomfort or unmet expectations and it's hurting is pause and say, oh, what's that from? Where's that at? But what if it's an emotional hurt, Eric? What if it's not my ankle or my arm or my back? What if I experience loss? What if I go through a bad breakup? Or what if I have a failure at work and it's an emotional hurt and it's not a physical hurt? I don't think I'm alone in wanting to race past those and look to the brighter future. But again, the hurt, the pain, and discomfort, it's there for a reason. It's a sign for us to know that something's happening. And in the context of this week, as we look towards Easter, our same modern sensibility where we don't like to be uncomfortable, we don't like to be in pain, might want us to rush towards Sunday. Because we know that hope is coming. We want to run towards the outcome that we know is just around the corner for us. But Good Friday is a day that actually, it should sting a little. It should make us uncomfortable because it should show us the price that was paid for us. And it also leads us to the second thing that I want us to do when you find yourself in the gap, when you experience this pain or disappointment, is ask God why. Ask God why. See, almost everything about us is created to respond to pain. Our bodies are designed to experience it and sense it as a warning sign. Our, our minds and our emotions are, are wired to pick up things that are uncomfortable, things that are hurtful towards us. And we should know and understand that discomfort in our spirit and in our mind is a part of our life. God created us this way. Not so that we could simply experience hurt, experience uncomfortability, experience pain, 
and say clinically, oh, yes, there's some pain, and then move on past it. It's not just for the sake of acknowledging that it's existing. It's for us to stop and ask the question, why? And the question I want us to use most often is, God, what purpose does this hurt or discomfort have in my life for your glory? What purpose does this have in my life for your glory? And why is sometimes an intimidating question to ask of God, isn't it? It almost feels a little bit untrusting, almost feels a little bit disrespectful to ask why of God. But the one who created you is up to the challenge of answering your hard questions. The psalmists in the Bible give us all sorts of examples of writers asking God hard questions. David and his compatriots asked often, How long, O Lord, will you leave us here? How long until you come back for us? They also asked, Will you forget me forever? God, why are you treating this way towards me? They also asked questions like, Will evildoers prosper forever? The scripture is full of these hard questions for God. Even Jesus had an opportunity to answer hard questions from dear friends of his. Mary and Martha, when their brother Lazarus died, he came to them after his death, and they went to him and said, Jesus, if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. You could have saved him. He doesn't run away from their question. He weeps with them, and then he takes the pain and he uses it for his glory. And the third thing might be the hardest. It's we need to listen and respond. So if we're going to ask God the hard question, it doesn't do any good for us not to respond to it and listen. So after you've slowed down, after you've resisted the temptation to rush through your discomfort, after you've asked the hard question, we want to listen and respond to what we hear. Because not only is the Lord big enough to deal with our hurts and our pains and our discouragements, he loves us so much that he won't leave us in that place. His promise is to bring the fullness of life that Jesus came to proclaim, that fullness of his kingdom, into our everyday lives. And it's so important and so much so for him that the Father and the Son and the Spirit together orchestrated a day like today. They orchestrated the day like Good Friday. Christ on the cross to be the centerpiece of a rescue plan for us. All the way from the time of creation, they knew that there would be a plan to bring people back to themselves. And that's why we get to call today good. The crucifixion and death of Jesus, because it means the restoration of humanity back to God. And even though people around Jesus experienced that expectation gap that we experienced in our own lives, the suffering and death of Jesus was a necessary one. For God, there's no such thing as arbitrary pain or arbitrary disappointment or discouragement. It's a symptom of the brokenness of the world that we live in. It's something that's still being overcome as the kingdom of God advances every single day. The Bible is is full of instances where the goodness of God comes on the back of suffering, on the back of pain. You see David fleeing King Saul into the wilderness before he can become the rightful king of Israel. You see that Lazarus 
dies before he's raised from the dead for the glory of God, for the fame of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus heal people who are paralyzed and blind, who suffered for years, all for the glory of God. And similarly, that cross and that death that Jesus had to experience is God's good on the other side of suffering. There's a quote that I love from C.S. Lewis, and he says this, On the one hand, death is the triumph of Satan. It's the punishment of the fall, and it's the last enemy. Christ shed tears at the grave of Lazarus. He sweat blood in Gethsemane. The life of lives that was in him detested the penal obscenity, not any less than we do, but more. But on the other hand, only he who loses his life will save it. We're baptized into the death of Christ, and it is the remedy for the fall. Death is, in fact, what some people would call ambivalent. It is both Satan's great weapon and also God's great weapon. It is holy and unholy. It's our supreme disgrace and our only hope. It's the thing that Christ came to conquer and the means by which he conquered it. And so whatever our experience is, as we come to tonight, as we come to Good Friday, wherever you might find yourself facing that expectation gap between what you thought would be and what actually is, the goodness of Good Friday is that God saw all of it. He saw everything that would be done to Jesus. He saw the betrayal, the insults, the abuse and the pain, the weight of the sin of the world, and he still chose the cross. There's no difference in expectation versus reality for God. And the question for us tonight is, will we trust that he sees us when we're in the gap? While we're still waiting for hope, while we'll st we're still waiting for restoration and resolution, will we put our trust in him? So I think it's only fitting that as we remember the death of Christ on the cross tonight that we partake in communion together. Jesus, as our perfect sacrifice, went to the cross for us, and we are invited to participate in the meal that he left for his disciples and those who follow him. And so at that meal, he instructed his followers, whenever you do this, it's in remembrance of me. So I'd invite you, whether you're in person with us or if you're joining us online, uh, let's just take a moment of preparation. I'd invite you to examine your hearts. If there's any place where you feel like you're holding that gap between what you thought would be and what is, uh, and you're holding that hurts, bring it to the Lord. Or if there's a place where you know that, God, I've just I've broken a command that you gave me. I've gone against your ways. Would you just come to him in repentance? And in just a moment, we'll partake together.
Let's take this bread together just as a reminder that Jesus went to that cross and his body was broken for us. And we'll take the cup of the juice together as a reminder that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins once and for all. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you glory and honor and praise for the ways that you saw all that was to come, all the ways that your people would fail you and hurt you over all of time, and yet you still chose the cross. You knew what it would take. You saw from the very beginning you sat in your son anyways. Thank you for that gift of salvation, for the joy of knowing you, for the work of the cross of Christ. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?